Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to conclude our series, Church in the Wild, uh, this morning. Uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, <clears throat> as we get into November, we're going to uh, have a, uh, a series, a short series on Thanksgiving, and then, of course, we'll finish out the year with a Christmas series. So uh, please be in prayer for us as we prepare for those uh, those closing messages for this year. Uh, it's hard for me to even imagine that the year has gone by so quickly uh, and uh, that we're going to be heading into 2023 before we know it. But we won't get too far ahead of ourselves today. Uh, we'll, we'll take a little time to kind of consider Peter's closing uh, words to the church. And, and I guess what I would like to do this morning is just to begin with this. Words are important. Everybody hear me? Amen. Words are important. What you say and how you say it matters. And again, I think that there is a tendency among many of us to think that nobody really cares what we have to say. And I just want to dispel any such notion from your mind this morning. God has gifted you with the ability to speak. And what you say and how you say matters far more than you can ever imagine. Proverbs 25, 11 is a verse that perhaps many of you have memorized. It's a favorite verse of many. I know it was of my mother-in-law, Billy. Uh, it simply says this, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. And the idea behind that verse, as we all know, is that the spoken word or a spoken word coupled with how that word is spoken and the moment in which that word has spoken, when all of that comes together in just the right way, those words become immeasurably precious or valuable. What you say can have a, a significant impact upon the person to whom you say it, or perhaps even to those that may be listening to you say it to someone else. So words are very, very important. Of course, the Bible repeatedly teaches us that our words are to be used to build others up, not to tear them down. And sadly, we live in a day when it seems that increasingly uh, words are used to tear people down. Uh, that is a tactic of our enemy, the devil. He is the accuser, right? He is the, uh, the slanderer. And so anytime you hear words of accusation, words of slander, you can just know that the devil's behind those words. As Christians, we're to use our words to encourage, uh, especially we're to use our words to encourage one another within the body of Christ. But it extends far beyond that, church. We are to use our words to uplift, to encourage, to comfort even those who are not a part of the body of Christ. And of course, as we know, words of comfort and encouragement that Peter is going to offer, really that Peter has been offering throughout the, the course of his letter, are especially important to those who are going through times of struggle, times of, of suffering. 
And so as we close, Peter is going to offer us some welcome words uh, for those who are suffering in the wild, as we have labeled this, this series of sermons. So read along with me if you would. We're going to begin in verse 12. Of 1 Peter 5, we're going to just read down through the end of the book. Not, not a lot this morning that we're going to deal with, but I think you'll find that there's quite a lot here to, to consider. Peter writes by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. We'll look at these verses together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we know, Father, when we refer to the word of God, we are not referring to any one particular word, but we're referring to the words that you have written to us, the, the, the word of God, the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, you have written, you have spoken uh, to reveal to us who you are and how we are to rightly relate to you and what it is that you call us to do in this life. You've talked to us about what's important and what's not important, what's holy and what is unholy, what's to be embraced and what's to be rejected, Lord. And we, well, we impoverish ourselves when we fail to give heed to your word, to avail ourselves to this great instruction, teaching, comfort, encouragement. So I just ask you today, Father, help us to receive these words, Lord, written by Peter, but intended for the church and ultimately inspired by you as he was carried along, as the scripture says, by the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, these words are for us this morning. These are words of comfort. These are words of encouragement. These are words that we need to, to remember because we too, like those in Peter's day, we face trials temptations. We face difficulty and hardships, sacrifice, and often suffering. So again, just drive these words deep into our heart today, that we might always live with a, an awareness of them, especially in those times when we are struggling. And we ask it all today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First word that we hear from Peter is a word of commendation. And I don't know about you, but if any biblical author, and again, anytime we read the Bible, even though we can rightly say that Peter wrote this letter uh, that we have here before us, these are the words of God. But again, also the words of the apostle. And he says by Silvanus. Now, Silvanus is more than likely the same character that is mentioned many times in Scripture by the name of Silas. Uh, we don't know this for sure, but we believe that Silvanus was the very Silas who, who sang praises to God uh, in the Philippian jail with the Apostle Paul. He was a man who had served the Lord faithfully on multiple fronts, multiple journeys with multiple church leaders and at the end of his ministry here with Peter. And, uh, and so Peter is commending his service, commending really his character. He, he says of Silvanus that he's a faithful brother as I regard him. Uh, we should all desire to be known as faithful brothers, faithful sisters in the Lord. We should so live our lives, so serve the Lord, so encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ that when somebody thinks of us, this is what they think. Oh, that's a faithful brother. 
That's a faithful sister in the Lord. You can count on him. You, you, can, you can depend on, on her. Peter considered Sylvanus to be a faithful brother. And this faithfulness that he had put on display, I mean, the only way that Peter could know or, or consider him to be a faithful brother was to see him in action, to see him living his life, to see him serve the Lord, to see him sacrifice, to see him suffer, and the way that he did all of that. So his faithfulness was apparent, and all of it in the context of suffering. Silvus, Silvanus was a faithful brother, even as he suffered. And again, we don't have to have any, any other picture other than the one that we have of he and Paul in that Philippian jail, hands and feet fettered and in stocks, the, in this dungeon, this dark, damp, terrible place, and yet even there, singing praises to God. Silvanus was indeed a faithful Brother. Now that word faithful, of course, has a, a, a wide range of meaning. So I just want to I I touch on a few of them here, I believe, as, as Peter thought of this man, this is what he thought of. First and foremost, that word faithful means believing. All right? It was evident by the way that Sylvanus lived his life that he was a true believer in God. Peter considered him a genuine Christian. And again, isn't that something that you want people to think about you? There are people seated in church buildings all across the country today that are not really genuine believers. Sylvanus, however, was a man that was viewed, and I'm sure if Peter viewed him as such, he was viewed by others as such. He was a genuine believer. Nobody doubted his salvation. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, Jan and I were still attending a church in Austin, Texas. We hadn't yet moved back to the Dallas area. And our pastor asked a question in a message. He said, if you were arrested and put on trial and charged with the crime of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I think that's a question we all need to consider. I'm telling you what, that question changed the course of our lives. Sylvanus evidently was viewed by Peter and, of course, others as a genuine believer. He was faithful in that way. He was a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, his life bore witness to that faith. The word also carries the idea of being trustworthy. Now, when the scripture says here, by Sylvanus, or perhaps you're... you're, you're Bible might read through Sylvanus. Uh, scholars have debated over the years what this means exactly. It was not uncommon at all for biblical authors to write through a, a secretary, an amanuensis, somebody who actually wrote the words that they dictated down. Uh, many believe that that's what Peter is saying here, that Sylvanus actually wrote as he dictated this letter. Others think that that's not at all what, what's going on here, but rather that through Sylvanus means that Silas or Sylvanus was the one who actually carried this letter and delivered it to the churches that Peter sent it to. Uh, one way or the other, Sylvanus's life was viewed as a trustworthy life. He was a trustworthy guy. He could be trusted to write 
what Peter told him to write. He can be trusted with this precious word from the apostle Peter to the suffering churches to make sure that it got to where it was supposed to get to, that the right people or the people to whom it was written for indeed received it and were able to benefit from it. He was, he was trustworthy. And again, when you think of your own life, once you have established, yes, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, ask yourself this question, am I a trustworthy believer? Can I be trusted to use the gifts and talents that God has given me in behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I trustworthy? Sylvanus was a trustworthy man. The word also means that Peter saw Sylvanus as reliable, a man who could be counted on to accomplish the task that had been entrusted to him. Again, we need to ask ourselves that question. Are we accomplishing the purpose for which God saved us? No matter who you are, no matter how gifted or not you may think of yourself, God has saved you for a grand purpose. He has prepared good works for you to accomplish no matter who you are. Are you, are you doing that? Are you accomplishing those good works that God has prepared for you? Are you, are you reliable? And then finally, he was also dependable. It means that you could count on him to do what he said. If Sylvanus made a promise, he kept it. If he told you he was going to do something, he did it. Again, we need people like that in the church. Faithful, believing, trustworthy, reliable, dependable. People who will be there for us to speak words of comfort and encouragement. You know, one of the reasons that I have continued to implore people to come back to church, and if you're watching this morning from home, I, I'm so thankful that you are. But if you are able to come to church on Sunday mornings, then come back to church. We need you here. You can't speak words of comfort and encouragement to us as you watch on your device. Come back to church. Faithful brothers and sisters, come back. So he speaks this word of commendation, and again, it should be the desire of each of our hearts to have words just like this spoken of us. And so in order for that to be the case, we need to live as believing, trustworthy, reliable, tr uh, dependable people. Uh, that's the kind of people the church needs. And then Peter makes this great confession He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, referring to the letter that he has just completed or is, that he is currently concluding, declaring that this is the true grace of God. What a, what a confession. This is the true grace of God. In other words, this is what you need in a moment of suffering, in an age of suffering. Whatever your suffering may be compo comprised of, whatever it is, this is what you need. This is the true grace of God. All of that he has written in this letter is the true grace of God. He began with, with God's election, remember? He spoke of the elect exiles. Think about this for a moment. When you, when you see that word, I know that word troubles people. When you see the word election in the scripture, this is what you should think of. Before the very foundation of the world, God chose to set his love upon me. 
That's what you should think. That should be such a word of encouragement. Before the world was, God loved me, chose me, set me aside for himself and his purposes, made me a person of significance and, and worth. That's what that word means. Shouldn't scare us, shouldn't upset us. That's the true grace of God. Not only did he write of that eternal choice that God made of us, but then he wrote of Jesus' atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension. Uh, again, when we think of the grace of God, how wonderful that God would send his own son to pay the price for our sins. We, we couldn't do it, could we? Uh, we wouldn't do it. But he did. And then he closed his letter with God's promise of eternal glory in Christ. We just, we just read that a couple of weeks ago in verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What a... What a promise. These words are the true grace of God. This is the grace that God makes available to us. And again, when we think of grace, I mean, often, you know, we speak of grace being the unmerited favor of God, the undeserved favor of God. And that's, that's indeed a, a, a correct definition of that word grace. But think of it in this way, because that's just kind of theoretical, isn't it? Grace, this true grace that Peter writes of, is what God has done for us. You know, I started out talking about your faithfulness, your eagerness to do what God has purposed for you to do. When we think of the grace of God, that's not, that has nothing to do with anything that we do. It's all about what God does, what God has done in our behalf. God's grace is indeed his undeserved favor and it speaks of all that God has done for us. Again, he saved us by grace. He sustains us by grace. He strengthens us by grace. And his word, Peter's letter, the entirety of the Bible is the true grace of God. When you need strength, when you need comfort, when you need encouragement, certainly you ought to be able to come to church and find it in the words of your brothers and sisters in Christ. But first and foremost, we can always find it in the Word of God. Amen. Of course, Peter says that he's writing, he's exhorting us, he's declaring these words. That, that word exhort, of course, speaks of encouraging really of, of urging, but, but encouraging. It's not, a, it's not at all a negative thing. It's a, it's a word of, in, of encouragement. He is, he is comforting us and challenging us at the same time to faithfully persevere through times of suffering, trusting all the while that God is at work in us and through us and on our behalf. I mean, we sing that song, right, about God going before us and God standing behind us. I mean, and God is really on either side of us. No matter what you're going through today, Christian, God's with you. And what a comfort that should be. What a grace that is in our lives. We don't deserve God's help. I mean, sometimes we, we read those scriptures as if we, we somehow deserve God's presence in our lives and his help in our lives. We don't. It's, it's all of grace. Totally undeserved. So Peter confesses, and so should we, 
But the Word of God is in itself the very grace of God that we need. He exhorts us. And, and then he declares, that, that word is commonly translated testify or testifying. We could say that, that Peter is exhorting and testifying. And what, what's the difference there? It's one thing to exhort, one thing to encourage or to challenge. It is another thing entirely to be able to identify with those you are exhorting through your own personal experience. And that's what Peter's saying. <clears throat> I've experienced the suffering that you're experiencing. Matter of fact, he perhaps was experiencing that suffering at the very moment that he wrote. So that word declaring speaks of Peter's personal experience of God's grace in times of suffering. In other words, his teaching that God's grace would strengthen and sustain you was not just a theoretical position for him, not just a theological position for him. He had lived it. He had experienced it in his own life. God's grace had strengthened and sustained Peter on countless occasions. And again, perhaps at the very moment in which he wrote these words. So in other words, he's not writing as a mere observer, even a, even a compassionate observer. He's writing as a fellow participant in the sufferings of the church. You know, when you're able to say to somebody, I've, I've been where you are, boy, that goes a long way, doesn't it? I've been where you are. I, 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 I sympathize. I suffer with you. I know what you're going through. I know how difficult this can be. And that's what Peter's saying to us, to the church. This is the true grace of God. I've experienced it in my own life. You can, you can count on this. And then, of course, he gives us this commission, this command. Stand firm in it. That's the Peter that we all know and love. Boldly telling us what we need to do. Stand firm in this grace, this true grace of God. What does it mean to stand firm in the grace of God? We've talked about it a lot already. It means to take your stand against whatever it is that comes against you. To stand firm, not to flee in fear, not to cower and to, to melt or to, to be frozen in, in, again in, in, in fear, but to, but to stand firm, knowing that you've got firm foundation to stand on. You know, it's our belief in the Word of God, the revelation of who God is and what He has done that enables us to stand against the enemies that assail us. This true grace of God, this word, these words of God, that's what enables us to live this overcoming, victorious life. And again, I think sometimes we know that in our heads, but it never quite makes it way, its way to our hearts. Our lives don't reflect it. I mean, if we truly believed it, we would spend so much more time in God's word, so much more time in, in prayer, so much more time searching the, the scriptures, wanting to know all that we can know about this God of grace. It's our strength. It's, our, it's again, what sustains us. Paul says in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord. Don't you want to be strong in the Lord? It's found through his word, the true grace of God. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Again, don't think 
that you were strong enough in and of yourself to face this battle. Stand strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be, with able, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Let me tell you, we live in an evil day. Peter and his fellow believers lived in an evil day. And if we want to stand, if we want to survive, if we want to, if we want to, to, to be confident and assured and bold as we represent the Lord in this evil day, we've got to know what God's Word said and, and beyond just knowing. We've got to believe it. We've got to embrace it. Take on the whole armor of God. And having done all, stand firm. Take up the shield of faith, Paul writes, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Those slanderous, accusatory arrows that he shoots at you. How do we, how do we defend against that? Well, we take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If we're going to stand firm in the true grace of God, it means that we're going to stand firm in our understanding of God's Word, our embrace of God's Word. Uh, that's how you do it. It's as simple and as difficult as that. So stand firm in this grace. And then look what he does here. Again, not uncommon for uh, biblical authors to, to speak of those who perhaps are with them at the moment, send greetings. But he does that, and he says, she who is at Babylon. Again, don't get uh, all riled up about the word Babylon there. It really just speaks of the church in Rome. It was kind of a code word, all right? The church in Babylon, the church in Rome. There were Christians in Rome. Rome was, a, was an evil empire. But there was a people of God there. And they are the ones that are sending their greetings to those who were reading this letter from Peter. Again, and it's simply another reminder that we never suffer alone. That our suffering is not merely something that we do for our own sake, as important as that is. But when we suffer, we suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, for the sake of Jesus Christ. We, we suffer for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes it's not always easy for us to connect the dots, to, to see how my suffering is somehow going to impact my brothers and sisters around the world that don't even know me, have no knowledge of what I'm going through. But let me tell you, according to God's Word, that's what happens. We suffer. And the knowledge that our brothers and sisters, matter of fact, Peter just wrote about it. He said, after you've, or, or pardon me, he says, resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter uses that as a reason to encourage the suffering saints of God. Look, you're not the only one suffering. Your brothers and sisters throughout the world are experiencing the very same things that you're experiencing. He wrote that as a word of encouragement. So we live in this family, this communion. Uh, you know, we often observe a communion service, right? The Lord's Supper. This is the very thing that it points to. We're together in this. We are one. We're all a part of the body of Christ. Various members, but all of the same body. We, we serve in communion. We suffer 
in communion. Again, that's why it's so important that we gather together in person so that we can encourage one another. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, again, he describes as likewise chosen. Again, that word, we're chosen by God. We're chosen by God and for God. These brothers and sisters of ours stand with us. Again, how does the church in the check where Melissa is serving, how do they stand with us? How do we stand with them? I mean, we might be able to understand our standing with them. We've, we've sent Melissa to them. But let me tell you, according to this, because they may be reading this very, this very same passage of Scripture this morning, and it applies equally to the church there. They stand with us. They suffer the very same things that we suffer, perhaps to an even greater degree. We suffer together in communion. We, we, we do this together. We're, we're never alone in our suffering. Ought to be an encouragement to us. And then he, he says this. Again, look, he mentions Mark here, my son. This is the Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. This is the Mark that Paul got upset with at one point. He had been traveling with Paul and Barnabas, but he had, he had gone home. He had, the, the, the ministry had overwhelmed him, and he had, he had left. And the next time he wanted to come back and join, Paul said, I don't want him with me. Later, of course, he asked that Mark be sent to him because he has a benefit. This is that Mark at the end of his ministry, at the end of Peter's ministry, serving there. Uh, There may be times that you fail in your service to the Lord. But that doesn't mean that your failure is final. Mark's certainly wasn't. Mark contributed greatly. I mean, my goodness, he wrote one of the four Gospels. We stand together with the church, with all the people of the church, the individuals of it, Peter, Mark, We stand together. And then he says in verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. There are probably five or six other verses we could turn to. I think all the other ones speak of a holy kiss. This is the only one. Peter writes the kiss of love. I I like that really better. And this is why I like it. The kiss of love was an outward expression of an inward reality, or at least that's what it was supposed to be. In Peter's day, You didn't just kiss anybody on the cheek. You kissed your family. All right? You kissed those that were in close, intimate relationships with you. And it became a sign within the church. People who were being ostracized by much of the the culture, all right, found a place where they were accepted and loved. And that acceptance and love was demonstrated to them by this kiss of love, this holy kiss that, that Paul writes of on multiple occasions. So it was an outward expression of of an inward, or at least it should be. In other words, I guess I could say, don't be giving anybody the kiss of love if you don't really love them. This This isn't a time to pretend. This is to be an outward expression of the reality of love that you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says that it is the love of Christ that compels us. That's, that's why I use the word compulsion up there. He is, he is compelling us as, as the love of Christ compels us. 
We are no longer, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, to live for ourselves, but we're to live for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. John writes it this way in 1 John chapter 4. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation meaning that Christ came to satisfy the wrath of God and to take away our sin. That's what Christ did for us. That's what God did for us in sending his son. That's the true grace of God in action. And so he says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So this kiss of love was the outward manifestation, the outward evidence of a genuine love that I have for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, you know, we could talk all about the culture in which this practice took place. Uh, this was something, men kissed other men, women kissed other women. There, there wasn't, there wasn't, men didn't kiss women on the cheek. Uh, women didn't kiss men on the cheek. This was, a, this was just the way this was practiced today. This, this custom continues in many places throughout the world. You see it all the time on television and movies, right? This double kiss. We don't do that so much here. Some of us do, don't we, Shirley? <laughs> Handshakes. Hugs. Same principle here. Greet one another with a hug of love, a holy hug, a holy handshake, a holy kiss. Again, this outward expression of a genuine love, a genuine acceptance of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we're talking about here. That's what Peter is compelling us to do. That's what the love of Christ compels us to do. Greet one another with a kiss of love. And then he concludes the letter with that last verse, peace to all of you who are in Christ. And of course, this is Peter's desire. He's, he's expressing the desire of his heart. Peter wrote from a, a pastoral perspective. He loved the church of Jesus Christ, which meant he loved the people of God. The desire of Peter's heart was for these people that he loved to experience in their day-to-day -day lives, especially when they were going through periods of struggling and suffering, the peace of God. That's what he writes. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And again, this word, as Peter uses it here, speaks of this overall sense of well-being. You know, we use that word peace. Yeah. We think of no more war, right? No more warring. No more conflict. We want peace in the world today, right? But the way the word is used here speaks of this inward sense of tranquility, encouragement, well-being. In other words, even if there is war going on, and there always is, even if there is evil that comes against and attacks us, and there always will be, we can experience this peace, this, this sense of well-being. Again, the, the presence of God, the favor of God, the smile of God upon our lives. That's, that's what he's talking about. Peace be to all of you who are in Christ. So again, this word of comfort, if you are a believer today, your life can be characterized by this sense of well-being, this peace of God that surpasses all human understanding. But here's the, here's the warning that's carried for us here. 
this peace only comes through Jesus. You can't find this peace in the world. Matter of fact, Jesus says that. In John chapter 14, it's my, he refers to it as my peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, he says. Not as the world gives. See, you can't find this kind of peace in the world. You can only find this kind of peace in Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14 that Jesus is himself our peace. If you want this kind of peace, you've got to be in Christ. You've got to know Christ as Savior. And Lord, so I'd ask you today, do you have that kind of peace? You know, I think I got word between the end of last week and this weekend of at least three people who received a diagnosis of a malignancy in their body. Christian, can you receive the diagnosis of cancer? And have peace? If you know Jesus, you can. You can. You should. That kind of peace is found only in Him. So ask yourself this morning, is my life characterized by this kind of peace? Do I know Jesus Christ as my Savior? And Lord, and if you don't, if it's not there, if that peace is not there, if that sense of faith in a resurrected Savior is not there, then turn to Him, the Bible says. Turn to Him right now. Don't wait another minute. Turn from your sin and receive Christ Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And walk out of here today with the kind of peace Peter desired for the people that he knew in the church. The kind of peace that we all desire that we would have in our own lives. We should desire for those all around us. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Experience the peace that surpasses all human understanding.